it doesn't just affect operators and the market when that's happening. It's a public health hazard because essentially what you're getting is unlicensed, untested, unregulated product coming into the market and making its way into the stores. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Willie McKenzie, co-founder of Less Coast Holdings. Willie, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm great, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Willie. Uh, I mean, it's awesome to have a West Coaster on bringing all that knowledge to the East Coast, right? Yes, yes, Willie is from the West Coast. I have nothing. Uh, I've desperately fought to find some sort of association with East Coast. And um, undoubtedly, Willie, East Coast, West Coast, which one do you have to choose? The West Coast is the best coast. We all know that, man. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. So, Willie, before we dive in, for our listeners on Film About You, can you give a little background about yourself and how you got into the cannabis industry? Yeah, sure. So, uh, man, my trip in the cannabis industry starts many, many moons ago, late 90s, selling weed in high school, uh, sold weed through college. I started growing in 2006 in my garage with a single light, went to 12 lights in a bigger garage. And then I eventually took uh, took outdoor under my wing and, and wound up with four farms up in the hills in Northern California um, prior to coming to Michigan. Michigan is my first foray into the regulated market and we have a a, you know medium small medium-sized vertical here fifty thousand plants uh outdoor sun-grown um for smokable flower 360 indoor lights uh manufacturing and processing facility and then three stores why make that transition from california to michigan was there a moment where you're like hey i want to take this to the regulated market what was that that feeling internally Yeah. So 2017, I had a really rough year. You know, a a lot of people who have been in the medical market have, you know, established facilities in places where the municipality has said that it's okay to have medical marijuana, but there's no guarantee that that municipality takes on a recreational ordinance, right? So you may have a store, a medical store, you may have a medical farm, and that that city or that county may not have a rec ordinance. And so you may not be able to take your facility in the rec market. And that happened to me, unfortunately, on four farms, right? So I had four farms that were okay for medical that were not okay for rec. I started getting big fines from the county, $25,000 here, $5,000 a day here, and had to shut down all my farms. It was also a big fire year. Um, We had this big fire in Santa Rosa, smoked my whole crop out right at harvest. And so, you know, I lost like a million dollars that year. And it was really licking my wounds and, and trying to figure out what to do next. And this opportunity to come to Michigan popped up. A good friend of mine was from here. We're in Manistee. That's up here. And he owned a bowling alley and had some local connections and was going to go after a retail license. So I said, uh, let's go check out the Midwest. So give us a little background about the Michigan market. I mean, you mentioned you guys have cultivation, manufacturing, and retail as well. So is it complete vertical? Like kind of describe the Michigan market and how it's different from the California market and what you were previously doing in that medical space. Yeah. So, I mean, Michigan has a great cannabis market. It has a longstanding medical market. So there are educated consumers here. There are operators who have been in the space for a long time. So much like California, much like Colorado, a really well-established market. 
And so that has lent itself to a lot of brands here. I mean, it's the second biggest uh, adult use market in the United States, second only to California. And I think on like a on a per capita basis that people in the Midwest and specifically in Michigan smoke more weed than uh, anywhere else, even California. So it is a really strong market. If you want to be a, a national cannabis brand one day, you have to be in Michigan. We have seen our fair share of challenges. I think that Michigan um, with outside of Oregon has been the most challenging adult use market in the in the US. We saw massive price decline in 2021 and 2022, probably the sharpest decline of any state. And so it's been a challenging market to operate in for sure, but uh, things have gotten better. They've been enforcing things and the market has stabilized a bit. What do you think led to the the price decline and then how does your team respond to that internally in order to recognize that the price is crashing and then adjust your operations in order to reorganize and then move forward? So the state really took a hands-off approach to enforcement. There was a period of time when this recreational market opened up where you could pretty much do anything you wanted. Nobody was checking your work. You could check in thousands of liters of distillate. You could bring in thousands of pounds of weed. You could never turn on the lights at your grow facility and just kind of move your way through metric tags and have a harvest and send it out for testing and never incur any of the costs that are associated with actually growing product and just check in product from somewhere else, from California or Oklahoma or wherever the hell you want. And that has kind of come to people are doing. There was a change of guard at the head of the CRA, the Cannabis Regulatory Agency, and the new head of the agency is intent on enforcing the rules. People recognize that it doesn't just affect operators and the market when that's happening. It's a public health hazard because essentially what you're getting is unlicensed, untested, unregulated product coming into the market and making its way into the stores. And if you know anything about the testing standards in any of the states, there's a good chance that whatever's on the shelf in the store that you're buying, that shit has not been tested. I'm sorry. So with testing, didn't Michigan implement multiple COAs, right? That's one of the changes that the Michigan market has made is that because there was lab shopping that was going around pretty heavily. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of infighting around testing in Michigan. Uh, there's a large lab that was doing like 60% of the testing in the state that, you know, was having, you know, pretty questionable results. And the state couldn't verify their testing standards and they had invested a lot of money and, and they were kind of a big dog and they really pushed the state around. I mean, there was a big recall when the state first pushed up against them that froze like literally half of the products in the state were frozen by one recall. And they bullied the state and the state kind of got their ass whooped and had and really has taken kind of a, you know, hands off stance to attacking um you know bad labs, which are abundant, you know, and it's it's unfortunate because a, we as operators, I can tell you when I see a tag if it's bullshit or not, you know, like, oh, that's bullshit. I know that's bullshit, you know, like outdoor flower doesn't come in at 45%. Sorry, folks, I've been doing this for a long time and that's bullshit. It just doesn't happen. Like, look at that. There's no way that when you hold that flower up that 45% of the weight on that is THC. It's just not possible. Right. And the fact that customers don't really can't wrap their head around that, it's a little bit funny to me, but I guess, you know, it is what it is. One thing that the state has done is they are moving towards a state testing lab, which on one hand, I think is a good idea. But on the other hand, the fucking guys can't walk and chew gum at the same time. So like the idea of them being in charge of us getting product to market makes me sick to my stomach, right? Because when we finish something, I need it to get tested like that. 
so that we can put it on the shelves like yesterday. And if it has to go through a state lab, like Lord knows how long that's going to take. I, I honestly, I had this conversation at MJ Biz recently, right? And like, unfortunately, if the third party testing labs continue to be for profit companies, like this kind of stuff is only going to continue and like lab shopping is going to be a thing. And like the companies that, like you said, have higher potency and flower are going to get a better price. They're going to have better margins. They're going to have better chance of staying in business. They're going to continue to support the lab that's doing these weird things. So unfortunately, I think that one of the only true solutions is to make it a government third-party testing facility, because then at least you eliminate the for-profit aspect and this whole greed thing that's getting like, you know, like a, a, a lot of these third-party testing labs are startups as well, right? They have to pay their bills. So if I'm trying to keep my lights open and this guy comes to me and he's like, hey, if I sell my product at this number, I get this much more money. That means I can give you continued business. We both continue to do this together, right? So like the only exit I could see is for government third-party testing lab, which is unfortunate. Like, have you, do you see any other way forward? Yeah, I mean, I hate the idea of having any more government involvement in this business because they've already got their filthy <laughs> paws in everything that we're doing and it makes um everything that much more difficult, especially given the fact that they really don't know what the fuck they're doing. You know, I do believe in capitalism and free enterprise. I think that one of the things that they could do is have stricter penalties. Uh, around it because there are good labs out there, right? Like we work with a good lab. They are scientists and they're about the science, you know, they're about research and you couldn't pay them to fudge shit if you wanted to. That means though, unfortunately that their business is much smaller than they would like it to be because, um, you know, people take their business away from them because they want their shit to test higher. So if the States were to have stricter regulations, um, cause you know, they'll like, They'll give a, a a little weak ass like a five thousand dollar fine or twenty five hundred dollar fine to a lab that's fudging results and let them keep operating. It's like you know, unless the penalties have teeth, people are going to continue to do whatever the hell they're going to do because it's worth more to them than twenty five hundred or five grand. I, I think that's the the main message takeaway there is right. Like people weigh the decisions and what the penalty is, and and that's what we've seen in so many different aspects from California to New York, and I'm sure in Michigan also, where people are weighing those decisions whether it's operating legal, and then the unlicensed market where they're distributing the products elsewhere. So staying in Michigan, right? When we're talking about this, is there a chance that they could bring the testing in house and make the uh, own operators certify the material, and that way, if it's not tested or it it has issues? If the emphasis is back on the operators who release those products, is that a potential you say? It is. Certainly, there's potential for that. Although I think that the operators have the most impetus to fudge results. It's also, you know, everybody's struggling right now. It really would be cost prohibitive to have to bring like a testing lab in-house. But there's got to be something better than what's currently going on. 100%. This is not the solution that works. This is not the answer. I unfortunately am not smart enough to figure the answer out. Um, but someone who's smarter than me should. So if you're out there and you're smarter than me and you got some great idea about how to fix the testing standards in Michigan and in the other states, let's hear it. Call us. Because <laughs> there's so many people out there that are quick to say, this just isn't working. I'm with you, Willie, right? Like given given the, the current predicaments and all the challenges, like there there needs to be a better option 
but the biggest challenge is finding one that's suitable for all the parties that makes sense for the industry and the regulators that we can all agree, okay, like this is what's beneficial. This goes forward. But you're right. It doesn't seem like there's a silver bullet. So was there a educational or a learning gap when you had to go from California to Michigan? Like obviously California is the the main center of the cannabis industry and it's continued to be one of the leading voices from an educational standpoint and skill standpoint. So when you transferred over to Michigan, was there differences in the rules and regs that kind of surprised you? Yeah, I mean, there's so many differences. I was coming out of the illicit market, let's call it, you know, entering into the regulated market, thinking that, you know, I've been a successful business person in my life. And then I have this, I built, you know, seven and eight figure businesses outside of cannabis before. And then I also have this uh, native cannabis knowledge from, you know, cultivating for so many years that I was kind of putting myself into a position to be very successful. But when I got here, I was like, holy shit, this is another level, right? This is no longer like, if you have a little bit of business sense and you can grow weed, you're going to win. You have to be sophisticated to be successful in regulated cannabis. And the learning curve has been extremely steep. I went from um, a dude who ran a construction company and did sales and owned pot farms up in the hills where we sold weed and turkey bags to, you know, an executive of a eight figure business in a matter of like two years, you know, and having a hundred employees and dealing with a, a regulated uh, industry that I had never dealt with before and having to, you know, have CFOs and uh, deal with raising money and all this kind of sophisticated stuff that I had never gone through before. So I had to take certain steps to educate myself. I took some classes at Harvard on uh, accounting because I had uh, some big problems with accounting in the beginning. And I had, I was paying people who I thought were smart and they were just giving me bad shit, but I didn't know it was bad shit because I'm not that smart. So for me, the biggest like hurdle and the biggest difference has been like educating myself and leveling myself up as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as an executive, so that I can play and survive in this regulated market. Because this is, you know, it's not a full CPG business yet, but it, it's pretty damn close, you know? It seems like it's definitely trending towards theirs. And I'm just going to take it in the next direction. I can now see the advancements of the least cannabis operators. I'm assuming that education and that experience that you recognize kind of transitioning over and understanding that there are certain principles and skill sets that you needed in addition to what you currently brought to the table in order to be successful. Is this the intention now of helping others kind of follow in the footsteps of you and give them some of the guidance? Yeah. I mean, just as much as it's me um, passing along information, it's fostering the sharing of information between operators. So, you know, when the market collapsed here in Michigan, I mean, it's definitely the hardest year of my life. We barely survived, right? We lost millions of dollars. We were barely hanging on. There was plenty of weeks where I didn't know how I was going to make payroll. And like, you know, entrepreneurship is lonely, they say, right? It's lonely at the top. And then if you add cannabis to that, it's even more lonely. There's very small group of people who are doing this or doing it at this level. And if we're not talking, supporting each other, then we're really alone. So I started joining mastermind groups because I had heard that these were places where high level entrepreneurs get together and, and commiserate and share best practices and network and help each other. And it was really helpful for me to be around people who are also doing big things, but I was always the only cannabis guy, you know? And so we could talk about things like hiring executives and raising money and some of these things that are really common, no matter what business you're in. But 
when it came down to some of the some of the stuff that I was dealing with being in a regulated business, they were just like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. You know, what do you mean the market fell 90%? That's not even possible. Because if you talk about the housing market, like a 20 to 30% correction is a crash, right? If the Dow Jones falls 25%, that's a crash. Well, the distillate market in Michigan fell 90% from $20,000 to $1,000. And we had to keep going, you know, and I had to show up every day with a brave face on not knowing how I was going to pay my bills or pay the people and keep leading. And these people didn't know what that's like. So I was like, shit, I need to start something for cannabis operators, for people in the cannabis space. It's, you know, the, the ancillaries as well, right? Because they're they're in this with us. The people who are, who are providing us with marketing services and SEO and websites and insurance and everything, you know, they're struggling to get paid by operators too. And so that was really the impetus behind it was like, if we're not collaborating, we're not sharing information, we're dead, you know? Especially if you're not some big corporate MSO that has, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to burn, like we have to be working together because like I'm, a, you know, as a smaller company, like I'm a couple million, I'm a million dollar mistake away from going out of business. And I have made a bunch of multi-million dollar mistakes. And so if I can share what the mistakes that I made, like, hey, I paid three and a half million dollars for a license. That was a bad idea, gentlemen. Um, you know, and then somebody comes into my group and says, I'm thinking about spending $5 million on a, on a license. And I can say, well, here's what I did. And here's why it wasn't a good idea. Cause it's worth $500,000 now, you know? And so that was really the idea behind getting it started. I, I think that's so important because we continue to talk about how from an entrepreneurial standpoint, cannabis is just loaded with entrepreneurs and there is no playbook, right? Every single day you are chopping down the trees moving forward and there is no playbook. There is no modeling to understand that the product you're looking to sell is just falling 90% and you have to figure out a basically a new business plan starting immediately on how to keep the lights on, pay your employees, put on a brave face and keep moving forward. So kind of taking that in the same direction, you're having conversations with the people in the mastermind group. Then internally, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, this would be really great to bring to the cannabis industry. Who's the first person you you asked about? You said, hey, does this fit in? Is this something you're looking to join? Who, how did you kind of brainstorm that idea next? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of, um, I talked to a few people about it. I talked to Anthony Allegretti from 40 Tons. He was really interested. Um, there were some people in my network who I knew were interested in personal development and um, kind of leveling up and learning from each other and sharing best practices. But unfortunately, you know, our industry is really coming out of the shadows um, and really compartmentalized. People still have this scarcity mindset where like sharing what I'm doing that's working is is a bad idea because I'm going to take food off my my plate if I give it to you. And that's just, that's the wrong idea. You know, it's like, we got to share information because a rising tide lifts all boats. So you guys get it going, kind of talk us through some of the first mastermind sessions, how they were structured and then kind of like what the plan is going forward. Yeah, sure. So we have a Zoom call every Thursday and the basic concept is like, we have two to three people in every call, hop in the hot seat and talk about a problem that they're dealing with in their business. And we as a group process the issues together. And no matter what someone is going through, there's always a few people in the group who have already been through that issue. And so like, you know, when I think about some of the decisions that I had to make early in my business, I made decisions in a vacuum. We're talking about big decisions, multi-million dollar calls. 
that I was just making on my own and like coming into this group and, you know, you have somebody sit in the hot seat and say, I'm thinking about investing, uh, you know, $5 million into this, uh, you know, new dispensary and here's the situation and lay it out. And you got four people or five people or eight people who have literally done the same thing already and been through the whole market cycle multiple times, giving you feedback on A, why it's a good idea or B, why it's a horrible idea. And so that is kind of the general idea. And then, you know, just like we are going through something that is pretty brutal, right? Like, let's be real. This has been extremely hard. And you think about like, People who have been, you know, if you were a wrestler, like going through wrestling practice with your brothers, like that was that would that created camaraderie, right? And, and if you think about people in the military who went to war together, that creates camaraderie. Well, we in the cannabis industry are are really fighting to stay alive right now. And if you're doing it together as a group, we're creating camaraderie. And so the the ability to come in and say, like, I have to make payroll in two days, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. You know, and to sit there with a group of people who's not nobody, everybody has been through that. And everybody knows what that feels like. And to be able to bounce ideas off each other on how to make it happen is just powerful, you know? And so then we also have once a month, we have uh, a guest speaker. So, like Thursday this week, we have Brett Puffenbarger coming to walk us through his LinkedIn mastery. He has built uh, obviously a really large following on LinkedIn. He's probably one of the top voices in the cannabis industry. And he's got a formula for how he's done it. And I think that personal branding is incredibly important, especially in cannabis, where we are really handcuffed as to what we can do in our businesses in terms of social media. And so if you build a personal brand and represent your company, the, the, the reach that you have is so much bigger. And so it's just been really cool. You know, right now, um, I think we have 26 people in the group and we're getting ready to kind of splinter into two smaller groups because the group's getting a little bit big. And so then I'll be running to um, two smaller groups uh, at that point. I think going back to what you said about the creator economy is so important, just given all the restrictions in cannabis and marketing wise. And, and you're right. When people associate your face with a brand, it's it's an easier path and a, and a secondary path in order to kind of promote the product and the, and the expertise behind that. And people trust that voice, which I think is really the most important aspect behind it, that they see you delivering on the value consistently. And then when they look for help, they know, hey, Willie's been through this before. He's talked about this a bunch. I'm going to go to Willie. And I think that helps separate you from some of the other people out there. I think a commonly used term is consultants where people don't really like that because they've been burned a bunch of times. But I think the aspect difference there is the trust behind it, that they haven't really delivered on that value that they promised initially, which is part of the problem. So who is a person that should join this group? Is it just for executives? Is it for lower level operators? Is it for people wanting to enter the space that are unsure about the fit? Who Who's the group for? It's for, uh, you know, it's for founders. It's for executives. It is for people who are operating plant touching cannabis businesses and people who are operating ancillary businesses in the cannabis space. And it has been extremely valuable. You know, the feedback that I've gotten from people and the interest that we've gotten, I've had 450 applicants and we've got 26 people in the group, obviously. So we do a pretty good job of vetting because it's really important. Um, the group is only as powerful as the members. And so we've been pretty, you know, careful about who we brought in, bring in. It's got to be somebody who's going to gel with the group. But yeah, operators, executives, plant touching, non-plant touching. It is a, a great place for people to get mentorship, mentor, create uh, bonds. You know, the other thing is 
people in the group are from all over the United States, right? We've got people from Colorado who've been operating for 10 years already. We got people from New Jersey who are, you know, building their first store right now. And for a guy who's been, um, you know, operating retail in Colorado for 10 years to be able to mentor somebody who's just literally building their first store right now is like, that is massive. You know, God, I wish I had that when I first started because I would have made I would have made so many different decisions, right? I I wouldn't have this big complex vertical operation. I'd be an asset like brand, like, you know, my guys from Uncle Arnie's and 40 Tons and and Old Pal, you know, those guys are crushing it without facilities. And I'm like, fuck, that sounds like such a good idea. You should start a mastermind group for uh the government regulators. Maybe <laughs> maybe some of the new states could uh could have learned some lessons from the the old states. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that like long, long term, that is my hope is that um, we are the group that states and the federal government comes to when they're looking to put together legislation, because the rules that we abide by are not made by us. They're made by lawyers and lobbyists who don't understand what we do. And so our regulations largely are just bullshit and they don't apply to us and they don't make sense. And so I want us to have a voice, especially at the federal level. But, you know, as new states come online, like if a state is coming online, I would love for us to be able to talk to the states and have some input on how they're doing things. And finally, you know, maybe a state comes online with with like some good legislation, some good regulations, um, because God forbid you look at what the other states did and take their best practices and maybe miss some of the mistakes that they made instead of reinventing the wheel at 20 fucking times and making the just a just dumb just making dumbass decisions that's that's just silly willie that makes way too much sense for them to even possibly <laughs> consider <laughs> i know so one of the things that i've appreciated most about following you on linkedin are some of the posts that you put out there and i just wanted to raise awareness on this one specifically do the things that others aren't willing to do yeah can you give like more context for our listeners? Maybe you didn't read that post on and kind of like the importance of a statement like that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, like I'm pretty improbable success story. I was a like homeless drug addict 11 years ago. I lived in a halfway house. I took the bus everywhere. I had a, like 100 grand in debt. Like I really started over in my 30s with with nothing like well below zero. And in the last decade, I have built a pretty phenomenal life for myself. Um, and it's been because I'm willing to do stuff that other people won't do. You know, I started my career off in sales, um, selling residential house painting door to door. Like that's the most effective way to sell that particular product in a lot of products. But most people just aren't willing to do it. You know, it sucks. It's hard. But that's something that I'm willing to do because I'm willing to do whatever it takes to to make it. You know, I've lost a uh, hundred pounds. You know, I have a big business that I run, multiple businesses that I run. I have a family, a wife, and, and a small child who I'm not willing to sacrifice time with. And so, in order for me to not become, you know, a fat dad bod um, piece of shit these days, I wake up at three forty five in the morning so that I have some time to work on my mental health and then go to the gym every morning. And I post every single morning on, on Instagram at three 45 when I get up, you know, and go do my thing. And so like, it's doing the things that other people aren't willing to do. I can't tell you how many people come to me and say like, man, I, I wish I could get in shape like you. I'm just so busy. Like motherfucker, you are not that busy. You're just not willing to do what it takes. Let's be real. 
You just value your, your nine hours of sleep more than you value being jacked. Okay. And that's fine, but don't complain about not being jacked because I only sleep four or five hours a night. Not that's not cool. That's not a flex, but I have three things in my life, right? I have work, I have family and I have me time, right? And I, sorry, I have work, I have family and I have sleep. If I want to do something outside of those three, one of them has to get sacrificed. I cannot sacrifice work. I have too much riding on this. I cannot sacrifice my family. That's a, that's a, a commitment that I have made. So I have sleep to sacrifice and that's the sacrifice I'm willing to make. I'm willing to go without some sleep right now so that I can have the things that I need in my life. That is something that I'm willing to do that a lot of people aren't. I think I, that's perfectly said. And I think there's something else that can be expanded on that because I think you, you, you've hit the nail on the head that at the end of the day, people say they want to achieve all these things, but prioritizing those things exactly, I think you take people by their actions, not by their words. So is there a specific piece of advice that was given to you or a turning point in your life where you realize like, this is direction, this is the type of priorities, or was this always ingrained in you directly and that you knew eventually like you're going to lock these in and these three things were going to be the most important for you? When I moved in with my wife, she was my girlfriend and um, she was waking up before I was and I felt like a fucking bum, dude. And I had this like realization one day that if I want to, you know, I had, I was like, I wasn't, I didn't own a company yet. I was an employee at a painting company. I was making like less than a hundred grand. And I just had this realization that like, if I want to make this woman, my wife, if I want to build a nice family and be a good provider, like I got to kick my shit into gear. And so I started reading personal development books. I started waking up early in the morning. I started having daily habits that promoted success. And amazingly enough, I started selling a lot more. You know, I, my sales went from like a million, two million a year to 5 million a year. Uh, you know, and then I started owning a third of the company. And then I started investing in cannabis farms and spending my time outside of work, right outside of my nine to five job, mastering other things, mastering cultivation. And my side hustle, right? Outdoor cultivation was my side hustle. It became my main hustle. And now it's an eight figure business. And so like, I, I want, I have always wanted to be successful. But for a long time, my my inputs didn't match the outputs that I wanted, right? Like, oh, I want to be rich, but I don't really work that hard. You know, it's like, okay, well, you want to be rich, step up, work hard. And so like personal development, mastermind groups have have absolutely been like the biggest catalyst in my success. So like in a world of specialization, how important has it been to your career in terms of like all of these different items that you've tried and diversified all the different skill sets? Like how does that impact your day to day now. If I had to say that I have one specialty, it would be sales, right? Like I'm a I'm a really good salesman. I'm a shitty executive. I'm a fucking horrible manager of people. I'm not a good like don't, you know, I have done a bad job managing people in my business and I recently just just brought in some like re- legitimate, you know, 50-year-old executives who really know their shit, have run big big companies before. And, you know, before this year, I couldn't do that because the business couldn't afford it. And so I had to be that manager. But specialization, I'm a fucking salesman. Okay. And I am an entrepreneur. I'm willing to take risks and put my money up. I can get shit off the ground. I like the messy, hectic startup shit. I'm willing to, you know, sit in Zoom meetings and go out and jump in a tractor or run an excavator. But I'm, I'm not great at anything. I don't think you give yourself enough credit, but I think that's also part of the the, the mantra. 
So if you could put anything on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get a message to billions of people, could be an image, a quote, a word, or something that inspired you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Fortune favors the bold. What question do you wish more people asked you? Oh, what question do I wish more people asked me? That's an interesting question. How did you get sober? I think sobriety is a superpower. I think more people could benefit from it. When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Right, quality, culture. Um, I, I, I'm from the culture. I've been doing this for a long time, well before the government said it was okay. What did I get wrong? Branding. You know, I'm a, I come from selling weed and turkey bags, man, and putting it in cute packaging. And I didn't understand that at first. And so we had a couple of brands really flop. And we spent a lot of money on uh, packaging and marketing on something that, that was confused and, and didn't work before we found, finally found the brand now Caddy that's doing well. What is the most expensive lesson you've ever learned? Oof. Don't overpay for licenses in, uh, you know, in an emerging market. All right. Prediction time. Willie, what skill do you predict will be most influential for leaders over the next five to 10 years relative to the cannabis industry? Relative to the cannabis industry, flexibility, the ability to pivot, the ability to be nimble, make, make decisions, not get stuck, not get bogged down in something and, and ride it until you die. Great answer. Kellen. I think the ability to learn, which is kind of similar to what Willie said, right? I mean, he already mentioned, right? Like he had to go learn specific skills, take classes at Harvard, right? Like I think that kind of stuff though is going to continue to be very prevalent in the cannabis industry, especially as you have drinks, other form factors, branding, you'll have big pharma come in, you'll have big tobacco come in. I think all of these factors are going to force executives to just continue to learn new skills and new areas for their business to be successful. What do you think, Brian? I've gone back and forth. I think having people from counter opinions give inputs on your decisions that might be different than what you're thinking could be helpful in just giving outside outside approach. I, I think what you said really before about being in a vacuum and hearing other people's perspectives that can help you are so critical. I think there's so many companies out there today that are like, oh, this is perfect. Customers want this. Consumers want this. But in the end, in the reality, consumers vote with their preferences by where they spend their money. And I think if they if they apply that information more directly to the end result and take feedback, some some sometimes constructive criticism a little little more aggressively, I think it might help them navigate some of these challenges to recognize that sometimes it's timing relative to not having the right product. So Willie, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more about you. They want to join the group. Where can they find you? Willie McKenzie on LinkedIn. Elite Cannabis Operators on LinkedIn and at Willie McKenzie Official on Instagram. That's awesome. Where I'm at. We'll link it all up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. All right, fellas. Nice seeing you. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.